I'm really delighted to introduce our next speaker, Catherine Brown. So Catherine Brown is based here in Trinity as a PhD student in the Department of History, um, but she's also a specialist registrar in plastic surgeon, uh, surgery. So she's here to speak to us today about plastic surgery and shame, um, and her talk is entitled Plastic Surgery and Shame, a Balancing Act. So uh, my name's Catherine Brown. Um, I'm at the other end of the spectrum from Professor Kelly. I'm at the bottom of the food chain. Um, I'm one of those junior doctors you've heard about in the media. Um, and I'm training in plastic surgery specifically. Um, as Luna suggested, probably this in the next talk will balance very nicely, so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, this is the type of image that most people, when I say, you know, I'm, I'm training as a plastic surgeon, including my family, this is what they think of first. Um, but in fact, the specialty really is a good deal broader than that, um, and particularly than the popular media asserts at the moment. Our full title is not just plastic surgeons, it's plastic, reconstructive, and aesthetic surgery, three facets in total. And it concerns itself with the alteration of both form and function, so plastic to alter the shape of something. Um, reconstruct, I, when I'm describing what I do, usually I, I'm split into two parts, reconstructive and aesthetic. So reconstructive, I would describe as abnormal to normal, okay, trying to fill in that deficit. And aesthetic, normal to a version of the improved, depending on whose perspective you're looking at. It's not a new specialty as such. Um, it's certainly taken hold within the last hundred years. But the demand to repair and reconstruct facial features in particular such as that of the nose, have been a constant um, of many societies in the past, often to avoid, uh, to avoid the stigma of violence, retribution, or disfigurement, such as that caused by syphilis. However, the First World War really is where modern plastic surgery saw its rebirth, um, providing an impetus to deal with innumerable um, disfigured young men. And many of you will have heard of Harold Gillies and his guinea pig club, a group of um, young men during um, the First World War who actually named themselves the Guinea Pig Club, it wasn't something thrust upon them, as Harold Gillies tried and modified surgical procedures to deal with their facial disfigurement um, and, and certainly developed the specialty a great deal during this time. The operating microscope later um, last century also helped to cement the development of the specialty as an entity of itself. <coughs> particularly in relation to autologous microvascular tissue transfer, basically a fancy term for borrowing tissue from one part of the body and being able to reconnect it to another part of the body using a microscope. Um, whilst it may appear that I'm purely here to promote plastic surgery as a specialty, and in a sense I am, it's actually hugely important how we perceive the specialty in terms of the patient consultation. The patient's perception of the practitioner, the plastic surgeon, actually informs the consultation process long before the first meeting. A patient who feels that a surgeon is primarily concerned with purely the aesthetic, the aesthetic minutiae, may feel ashamed of their less than perfect physique, further marred by the ravages of necessary treatment to treat, say, cancer or trauma. Indeed, multiple studies have actually shown that outside the areas of aesthetic and burn surgery, patients are actually unaware of what plastic surgeons do. This study actually carried out in Galway, looked at a thousand patients as they sat in the waiting room um, of the accident and emergency department and asked them, what do you think plastic surgeons do? Listed 30 procedures down and said, which of these do you think a plastic surgeon is involved in? 
And although most, most of my daily workload is to do with hand injuries, only about 10% of the people recognize that. Most people thought it was the boobs, the tummy tuck, the face lifts. In fact, what I do as a plastic surgeon or a trainee is considerably broader than that public perceives, from cleft, burns, skin cancer, hand injuries, and to aesthetic surgery. They all comprise the daily workload of a plastic surgeon. And actually, plastic surgery really is more a skill set than a specialty. It's a skill set that we can use on any aspect of the body. However, for every single procedure we do, the body will be altered in some way, and in turn, the patient's self-perception of their body image. How the patients react to these changes vary considerably, and often depends on where they've started from. So for example, a patient born without a thumb can have a toe transferred up, but what if that toe has very dark hair on it, looks quite abnormal? Is the trade-off satisfactory to be able to use that hand now and use those digits to pick things up, but with the social stigma of people recognising that that doesn't look quite right and probably asking them questions? No procedure is without consequence in plastic surgery, and often when we're describing to patients, we say something like, we have to borrow from Peter to pay Paul. It's always a trade-off, and with each procedure, we include scars and, in fact, an alteration of that patient's image. But each consultation brings with it layers of personal history and expectation, both from the patient and the surgeon in turn. Both expectations of the procedure, the post-operative result, and most importantly, the optimum result able to be achieved, given the particular circumstance of that patient. For example, the type and size of the defect may inform what we use to reconstruct that defect. It's important to note when we use the term defect, we're not talking in terms of defective, but more what is lacking. So if you are lacking a breast, we consider that to be a defect. But I'm, I'm aware of the, um, the layer behind the terminology that we use. All of these can contribute to shame within a consultation and on quite a regular basis. The consultation process, one would expect initially, is not actually purely for the benefit of that patient. It's also for the benefit of the treating surgeon, particularly in the pre-operative context. The surgeon assesses the physical and often, although somewhat superficially, also looks at the patient's psychologic and psychiatric state in addition to their perception of the problem to be addressed. To be clear for the point of discussion, it really is important that when the patient and the physician are speaking of the problem or the defect, that both are aware of what they're speaking of. Unfortunately, the practice of defensive medicine really is ubiquitous, particularly amongst plastic surgeons. In Ireland, both plastic surgery and obstetrics are some of the high-risk specialties in terms of medical litigation. And this must and does inform how surgeons interact with their patients in the consultation. In keeping with this, surgeons are actually asked by their defence unions to ensure that their patients are fully aware of the likely outcome of surgery. But this also involves, often involves pointedly noting to the patients defects that pre-exist the surgery. So pointing out to them faults that they may not have known. I often think of this likely as like going to a makeup counter, buying some makeup, you're happily taking it away, and the lady at the counter helpfully suggests that she has some cream for those fine lines you hadn't really noticed around your eyes. And that's what we um, regularly do to patients in a consultation. 
Given the breadth of the specialty, I thought it might be useful to just look at the consultation of one particular type of surgery and one particular um, procedure. And given that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and it certainly is an emotive issue, I thought I'd focus on this. As breast cancer in particular is regularly used as an emotive example of an altered body image. Bra Day is almost upon us next week, or Breast Reconstruction Awareness Day, and it's a relatively new addition to the October canon. Much like the widely coined Angelina Jolie effect in terms of making people aware of their breast reconstruction options, it aims to make women aware of these options prior to an actual diagnosis, so that these people are armed and ready to deal with their alteration of body image and what is available to them far before they would ever have, or hopefully don't have, a diagnosis of breast cancer. In this way, though, it asks women to focus on their appearance, the appearance of their breasts and what their absence might mean to them, and in turn also the defects. The creation of a new breast, the current concept of an ideal breast, is used as the aspiration, that breast, pert and full. And it's interesting to note that in 2012, Patrick Malucci, a plastic surgeon in London, actually published a paper detailing the exact proportions of the ideal breast using page three models um, <laughs> as a template. Probably one of the most presented papers in plastic surgery journal clubs because it came complete with photographs. Um, unfortunately, this marked the standard for beauty, which is really um, not in keeping with the typical breast cancer patient or a typical patient of that age and their likely proportions. Um, so here we see on the right um, a patient who's had a mastectomy. She's also had some radiotherapy. Um, you can see the stigmata of that. And on the left, this is the reconstructed breast using tissue from her abdomen, which, as I was discussing earlier, used um, a, a microscope to take purely the fat from her abdomen and take it to her, her chest wall, and I'll discuss that in a moment. If the fear of shaming the patient prevents a conversation of candor, then the patient may in turn present as dissatisfied and possibly litigious in the post-operative period. Research repeatedly again and again suggests that managing the patient's expectations is key um, to the eventual objective surgical outcome in terms of improving patient satisfaction. If a carefully selected patient has a surgical result that addresses their complaint and meets their expectation, the rate of dissatisfaction is reduced and litigation is either avoided or more easily defended. But to address the complaint, the physician or surgeon must ask detailed questions, pointing out flaws where the patient may not have perceived them. With the ideal breast shape in mind, the surgeon questions the patient in terms of ptosis or droop, which is very natural, postpartum volume loss or striae or stretch marks, each anomaly noted another potential cause for shame for that patient. Interestingly though, it's not actually purely the patient or the procedure that affects the outcome, but actually the timing of those procedures. So often what's been described in the literature that people um, who've had an immediate reconstruction um, have enhanced quality of life compared to those who've just had a mastectomy. But if you compare patients who've had an immediate reconstruction, so they've gone to sleep, had their mastectomy or their breast removed and had an immediate reconstruction, the same operation, with patients who've had their mastectomy, allow it to settle and then have it reconstructed, that second patient group are much, much happier and report increased quality of life, increased um, uh, body image compared to that first cohort. Because the first cohort, cohort have gone to sleep essentially with, to them, what looked like 
two normal breaths and woken up with something markedly different. Whereas patients in the second cohort have lived without a breast and understand the difference in, in, in their situation that the new breast has made to them. Postoperatively, often if a patient is perceived to be unhappy with the result, the surgeon will attempt to manage their expectations, comparing the physical state pre and postoperatively, inadvertently perhaps pointing out to pre-existing flaws, introducing shame as a measure of self-preservation for the surgeon himself. This patient, um, I, I don't know what you consider this reconstruction to be, but if, I was, if the patient was unhappy and you were looking to point out the flaws, there are quite a number that could be pointed out. Usually people who have um, a breast reconstruction, they're of, usually of an older age group in this type of procedure. The breast on the right is the native breast. The breast on the left is the newly reconstructed breast using um, the tissue from the abdomen. But you can see that the nipples are not symmetrical, um, that perhaps the left side is a little bit fuller. And usually, if patients are, are going to, or if we are going to address this with patients, we usually actually end up symmetrizing the right side. So we'll offer the patient a chance to correct or improve upon that native breast by lifting it ever so slightly back into its perfect position, and perhaps introducing a little bit of fullness where there's not. And that's often the standard method by which plastic surgeons will deal with um, an asymmetry um, for the patient postoperatively. The plastic surgery community often propagate the myth that breast cancer <coughs> patients would be bereft of any hope had their breasts not been reconstructed. This is a tweet um, from the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, the largest um, group um, of plastic surgeons in the US. They feel sometimes that it would be impossible for a woman to be complete without the lack of um, a heart so characteristic of her sex. So committed to this mantra that the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, ASPS, has been instrumental in ensuring that women in the United States are afforded the information to enable choice in breast reconstruction, even to the point of campaigning for legislature to ensure this. Curing the cancer hasn't been enough. Um, to have hope individuals must also have their breast reconstructed, or at least have the choice to do so. <coughs> to be without a breast is a needless hardship for this patient population in the view of the plastic surgery community. So, in conclusion, I would see shame as an inherent but unintentional often consequence of the clinical encounter in plastic surgery. In an attempt to reconstruct or recreate that which is missing, the surgeon must delineate the deficits and irregularities, asking the patient to acknowledge even to things to which they were previously unaware. Rather than originally largely from societal pressure, often associated with the aesthetic subjectivity, it is bound with the need to manage patient expectations and the risk of litigation. Shame in the current surgical consultation is almost unavoidable. Thank you.